being successful at doing something often brings the opportunities that if you don't figure out how to say no to the right things, create the opportunities that cause the success to end. So I'm very sensitive to that and not ignorant of the irony as someone that has like eight different businesses. I'm Ian Harvey from New York City, and you're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Michael Kitzes, partner and director of wealth management for Pinnacle Advisory Group, is on today's episode, and I'm really excited to chat with him. He's co-founder of XY Planning Network, co-founder of New Planner Recruiting, and a publisher of the newsletter, The Kitzes Report, and the Nerd's Eye View blog. He's also a co-founder of FPA NextGen. Up next, I'll be talking to Michael about long work days, multiple partnerships, and time management. We'll also touch on the trap of workaholism, how to balance saying yes with recruiting the right support, and how to find your strengths by exploring the opportunities that come your way. Well, I'm excited today to have Michael Kitzes here on the podcast with us. So Michael has a long list of accomplishments and things that he that he does. So he is the partner and director of wealth management for Pinnacle Advisory Group. He's a co-founder of XY Planning Network and the New Planner Recruiting, is a publisher of the e-newsletter that kids' report and the Nerd's Eye View, publishing daily. Is that right? Yeah, once a day. One once a- really long article every day. <laughs> What's your average word count? Oh, gosh. Average word count articles now probably 3,500 to 4,000 words. <laughs> every day. So he's writing like a book every couple months? Yeah. So he's a popular speaker going to 50 to 70 events every year. So you're traveling. That's crazy. Lots and lots of recognitions. Um, He's been the former practitioner editor of the Journal of Financial Planning, a co-founder of NextGen. He has been called a deep thinker, a legacy builder, an influencer, a mover and shaker, um, part of the Power 20 and a rising star in, in wealth management. You're also an active Twitter user, which I don't, I've, I've never figured out how to use Twitter and still be efficient with my time. Well, I frankly the the key is probably assuming it's not going to be efficient for your for your time. Yeah, you know, uh, for me I think Twitter is the like it's it's the equivalent of taking the break at the water cooler. Uh-huh. Uh so like that's that's not efficiency time. Like you don't take a break, walk out of your office, go down the hallway to the water cooler in the kitchen to be efficient and productive. Like you use it to chit chat with people and blow off steam for a little while before you get back into whatever it was you were going to be doing next for work. So uh, it's it's much more. Twitter is is the break between moments of productivity for me. Not not necessarily literally a means of productivity, but uh, but I you know in the end I lots of relationships that have formed over over Twitter. Like I've I've gotten business over Twitter. I've got speaking engagements over Twitter. Uh, uh, Alan Moore and I originally met and connected basically over Twitter and then got to know each other through uh, NAPFA and Association World and then started a business together several years later. So, uh, you know, as with anything, I think in the sort of the broad label of, quote, networking, like when you put yourself out there in an environment where you can connect with other people and you show up periodically and regularly, uh, it's kind of amazing who you meet and may build with relationships with that turn out to be meaningful later, even if you don't realize it at the time. So you are writing a 3,500-word blog every day. You're active on Twitter. You're traveling all everywhere all the time. You're always speaking. You've consulted with multiple organizations. You're co-founder of all these things. So the one question that I had as I was preparing for this is, do you ever sleep? 
So so we get that a lot to the point where on the little like about Michael page on kids.com, we actually have a screenshot of my Fitbit sleep tracker oh. to prove I actually do sleep. I'll admit I, I, I don't have the best social life these days. Uh, you know, some, something's got to give when, uh, when you do that much stuff and, and kind of work that many hours. But the good news for me, and frankly, just what, what makes it manageable is while I'm in a lot involved in a lot of different businesses, uh, most of those teams are remote. I do most of my work personally from a home office. And so, you know, I've got a, a day or two a month. I'm in some of the various offices for uh, our advisory firm or for XY Planning Network. But uh, most of the time when I'm not traveling, I work from a home office. And so when I need to uh, take a lunch break, like I, I go play with the kids because mm-hmm. uh, we have three little ones who are seven, five, and three. And so they're often home by midday uh, out of preschool. And so that's kind of the balance point for me. Like it's a, it's a lot of work and a lot of family and not a, not a lot of other stuff that fits in at this point and, and some sleep. Cause I, I actually do need my sleep for me, at least the fact I can work from a home office and, and family and kids are really close, yeah. uh, is, is part of what keeps that scene for what's otherwise a pretty ridiculous number of uh, of work hours that I do that leads to this common question, does Michael sleep to the point that we had to put on our website, my sleep schedule, just to prove that I do. So how many hours do you think you work in a week? Realistically, to be fair, I probably work about 65 to 70 hours a week, you know, pretty long days on the weekdays and usually a chunk of time on Saturday and Sunday. I don't work all day, every day, seven days a week. I'm usually not really good at finding whole weekends that I'm able to take time off because there's usually some spillover email or an article I've got to edit or something I've got to get through on the weekend because I couldn't during the week because of all the travel and the rest. Uh, but it's it's kind of five five long weekdays and a couple hours a day, usually on Saturday and Sunday. So it might be Saturday morning while the you know, kids are off at swim class, my wife takes them and I work for a few hours on Saturday morning. I might work a little on Sunday morning and I usually do a little bit on Sunday evening after the kids go to sleep before uh, the rest of the week picks up again. So you've kind of walked through through your week and, and I'm curious, can you dive more into that? Like, How do you kind of divide your time up in the, that 65 to 70 hours? It's been interesting for me that is, as businesses grown, I've actually had to put more and more structure to my time and my days of the week and how I handle them from what I did early on. Uh, you know, I, I've always ha- had a little bit of a I don't know, work- workaholic or at least hard worker tendency. Like I just, I, I really like what I do and I get sucked into it. And, uh, uh, and I'm also a, a fairly severe ADHD case. And so, I'm easily distracted, but when I get sucked into something, like I really get sucked into it, uh, <laughs> which is part of what's made it work and why I can like crank out long blog articles and long podcasts and such. And so for a long time, I just kind of managed to whatever came in. I did my stuff and I got my work done. Uh, but as the business grew and the platform grew and and more opportunities came, you know, it's it's easy to keep saying yes to opportunities and Usually there's some dollars or business opportunity associated with it, whether it's, hey, you know, can you can you write for us here or go speak there? Or I want to start a business to do this thing where you work with us and uh, consult with us on this. And I had lots of opportunities coming in uh, and and got overwhelmed, got, you know, overworked even for me, which says a lot. And and realized I was just I was really having trouble figuring out where my capacity was. Like 
when you're already a workaholic, figuring out where the line is between a lot and too much is actually really, really difficult. Uh, and so what I actually ended out with as kind of a system that I put in my place for in place for myself. So there's this metaphor out there about time management. I I originally heard it as a metaphor from Stephen Covey of you know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I don't actually know if he originated it or if it came somewhere from somewhere else. But the idea of it is so if you imagine all the time that you have in the in front of you for the week, you know, it's 168 hours a week. Uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So envision it like um, a giant glass jar, like a big mason jar. It's a fixed container. No matter what you do, you will not change the size of that glass container without literally shattering and breaking it. It's like it is an absolutely fixed container. And into that, you put all the different tasks that you're going to do through the week. And and so they kind of analogize uh, the things that you have to do the th- in the week into three pieces. There are um, like the big rocks, the few really big meaty things that you've got to do and get done uh, to move your business forward or, or power forward in what you're doing. Then there are the pebbles, which are kind of the medium-sized things that have to get done. They're not big meaty rocks, but like they're important things that come along that you really need to get done. And then there's the sand. Uh, the sand is the continuous flow of like, hey, can I you know bend your ear for five minutes? I got to call you about this quick thing. It's the like onslaught of email that never ends. And social media, I would certainly put in that camp as well. Uh, and so the challenge that most people have is that uh, they tend to deal with the sand first because it's in their face all the time. And so if you imagine this like physical mason jar, if you pour the, if you fill up the jar like two thirds of the way with all the various sand, then you go like, oh crap, there's a couple of things I really had to get done this week. So you pour the pebbles on top. You've now probably filled the jar like three quarters of the way or more. Now next to the jar, there's still these three large rocks that you're supposed to get done for the week. And you pick up the first rock and you try to put it in the jar and it won't fit because the jar is already three quarters of the way full with the sand and the pebbles. And it just kind of sticks out of over the top of the jar. And you certainly ain't putting the other two rocks in because it's already full. And so that's the challenge that most people have with time. The sand and the pebbles fill it up. You never particularly get the big rocks done and your business can stall out if you sort of get stuck that way for too long. And so the alternative prescription to this is that you place the big rocks first. So very literally. So now if you imagine the empty mason jar, you put your three big rocks in first. Now, the three big rocks basically on top of each other stack almost to the top of the mason jar. You know, they're kind of offset from each other because, you know, round balls round balls fitting into a cylindrical container. So like the three big rocks are in there, but there's giant gaps around them. So now around the gaps, you pour in the pebbles. And the pebbles can kind of float in and drift around and fill the empty spaces because that's what happens when you got a big jar with a bunch of space and you pour some pebbles in. Now on top of that, now you pour the sand. And it's actually pretty easy to pour the sand in last because it just finely ground sand. It just pours in every possible nook and crevice between the rocks and the, and the pebbles. But what you end out with when you go this route is the big rocks are always literally getting done first. The pebbles are always getting done second. And now if anything's going to get excluded, then something will always get excluded because there's more stuff to go in the jar than there is space in the jar. What gets excluded is the sand. 
which by definition was the least important thing to do. And it's kind of okay that you don't get all to the sand because you'll never get to all the sand. And if you do get to all the sand, we already know what happens. You fill the jar up so much, you can't even get one big rock and never mind all three. So I'm curious, what are your big rocks? I drill down my big rocks to the point that uh, I literally now have a calendar for the entire year. Every single day of the year, I make it a like a big, colorful Excel calendar. <laughs> uh, and there is one big rock assigned to every day of the year. Uh, now, some of them are uh, you know, days of trying to keep my sanity. I generally peg Sundays as just a big rock called Sunday, which is a nice way of saying don't put any other big rocks on this. You're allowed to do a little bit of sand and pebbles, right? I, I there's usually some drum of email that I've got to respond to that I didn't get to through the week. So like I'll, I'll pick that up on Sunday, but uh, I'm not allowed to put any other big rock on Sunday. Uh, so big rocks for me in practice are uh, blog articles. So if I'm going to do an article, it typically takes me a full day to produce one. If I block everything else off my calendar, so I'm just focused on writing that article in the day, I can generally pump out an article in a day. I'm a pretty fast typist. I've 10 years of producing blog articles, I'm pretty good at cranking them out once I know what I'm going to write about. But there are days in the calendar that are just the big rock this day is write a blog article. Um, I do a lot of speaking, as you mentioned. So there's a there's you know 50 odd plus days on the calendar where the big rock that day is do the speaking gig. Now in practice, and this is kind of the weird thing for speakers, you know, you it might be uh, a day or a day and a half or two days of travel to go out, get to wherever you're going on the plane, on the train, on the automobile, uh, in the hotel, the taxi back and forth, all that stuff. But you only actually have an hour or two of work <laughs> of like go up on the podium and like do your thing for that hour. So the speaking world is lots of travel time and it's very disruptive from a productivity end, but it also actually has a lot of downtime because I'm only literally on the podium for an hour or two and, you know, maybe engaging with the conference for a few hours beyond that because I want to. And so I really can't do any other big rock on a day that I travel for speaking, but I can definitely fit some pebbles and sand in because there is downtime of you know airports and taxis and hotel room and all, all, all the stuff that fills around it. And so the whole year for me is a series of knowing what my big rock is going to be every day all the way through the year. There are blog articles, uh, there are speaking days, there are essentially what I call business days. So like uh, uh, so many days I'm going to be up in the um, pinnacle offices for our advisory firm. I'm going to be out in Montana at the XY Planning Network and advice pay offices. Uh, I generally hold Mondays as a, the big rock for Mondays is just all of our team meetings. All of my different internal me team meetings just get lined up on Mondays. So I do virtually no speaking engagements on Mondays. Uh, I don't do any writing on Mondays. Mondays is always a team day, but I just fill Mondays. So it's usually anywhere from five to seven hours of meetings of just making sure my team knows everything that we're working on, what we're doing, who's doing what, because I may be hard to reach for the rest of the week because I'm either holed up working on an article or I'm out traveling for a speaking engagement with sometimes limited communication. Uh, Fridays, the big rock is always my weekend reading. Uh, you know, it's one of the most popular articles that we put out every Friday. We do a recap of the 12 most interesting articles of the week. And I usually literally write that on Fridays. Uh, I kind of, you know, clip articles all week long of things I'm seeing that are interesting, but I literally do the write up on Fridays because, uh, you know, well, A, it keeps it timely and B, you know, it's really hard to pre-write the news. You kind of have to wait for the news of the week to pass and then you can <laughs> write a recap of the news for the week. And so 
so my days are actually very set and structured with a lot of rigor at this point of, I know every day for the year what my big rocks are for the year. And ultimately, it was hugely helpful for me in figuring out where my personal capacity was and and not overburdening myself. Because by the time I put it on the year, like I'm not allowed to do any big rocks on Sundays and Mondays are team meetings and Fridays are weekend reading. And then I've got to write this many articles. So I need that many big rock days for articles. And I'm going to do this many speaking engagements. So I need that many big rock days for speaking engagements. And then I need to hold some days for things on the businesses. Uh, at some point, you just literally run out of days. And that's the point. So I got much better about actually managing my time and not overburning myself by converting to this kind of big rock system uh, so that I make sure I'm not overcommitting beyond things I can uh, I can do. And I always hold a handful of kind of slush days so that you know if a really cool opportunity thing comes up that wasn't on the original big rock calendar I said at the beginning of the year, I can accommodate a few one-off things, but it but it's relatively few. Um, and, and it's, it's forced me in a good way to learn to say no more often, um, because I really had the challenge for a couple of years when business started really growing and there were some cool opportunities and growth opportunities coming along that I just didn't, I had no idea when I had said yes to too many things and I needed to start saying no. I would only kind of figure out after the facts. I'm like, oh my God, I'm drowning with too many things to do. This is not pleasant. Uh, and I and I got to a pretty tough spot in God, probably 2015. You know, we originally launched the newsletter service in my speaking business in 2008. The blog really launched in 2010. It got growing really quickly over the first few years. By about 2013, it was really sizable. By 2014, it really started creating sort of new speaking opportunities and business opportunities and other stuff. Uh, and by 2015, I was drowning in it uh, and and really kind of struggling that uh, like I couldn't figure out what to say yes to and what to say no to. It all sounded neat. There were good opportunities, you know, like you know, business growth, nice problem to have. Like I'm, you know, don't want to, don't want to complain about the fact that that business was going really well. Uh, but it was kind of going too well and I was drowning in it and and trying to figure out like how could I create some structure to my world to figure out um, how to manage all this stuff as someone historically who was very ADHD and pretty much rejected any kind of schedule and structure. <laughs> uh, and now like I, I find my safety in my, in my structure. I'm like, this is my safe space. I know what I can say yes to and what I can say no to and what I can handle because my giant big rock calendar tells me. Uh, and it, it's, it's brought me a lot of, a lot more sanity. I still work a lot of hours, but it's made it much more controlled and it's now slowly been helping me figure out how I can regain more control and get better balance. Cause now it just, you know, I know how many days there are at the beginning of the year. I know how many of the rock things that I've committed to. And so it gets pretty straightforward as I look out at it next year, like, okay, you want to create two more weeks of space? Like, all right, well, you know, you gotta be like, yeah, what are you giving up? Like, you're going to give up some article writing and hand it to someone else. Are you going to do fewer speaking engagements? Like, are you going to you know transition on one of the businesses so you don't have to do the days out to that business? Like, there's only so much time, right? The mason jar is fixed, uh, and it just it's it's helped force choices and decisions that I otherwise was really not good at making. So I'm curious. Hearing you say all this, the question that comes to mind is: so what would you say yes to now? gotten hard uh to to be honest like there's 
there's a lot of stuff I've said yes to that's going pretty well that I'm excited to have it go well. Uh, my biggest challenge actually for the past couple of years is just that some of the things I said yes to a few years ago uh, happened to be growing really well and have kind of thrown off my time balance. Uh, you know, when we uh, kind of the case in point example is what we do with XY Planning Network, where, uh, you know, originally, like, this was kind of a side project for both myself and Alan Moore, my co-founder, you know, he had been involved with Napa's Genesis Group. I was involved early on with FPA's NextGen. We both thought there were some things that those programs did well, but some stuff that they missed that we thought we could do better by creating an independent organization to do it. So we went and launched this thing. But the grand vision when we launched XY Planning Network was, uh, you know, we figure like maybe we could get 20 advisors to join us initially, and then we try to get one or two a month. So like by a couple of years in, maybe there'd be a hundred advisors that were, uh, that were involved doing this kind of thing where we were championing doing financial planning for other young people and get paid on a monthly subscription basis. And, um, and that was the vision for it. And like, yeah, that was going to be very much a, a side project on top of the fact that I was doing my blogging and speaking and stuff. And, and Alan had his own advisory firm. Uh, and and now here we are five years later, uh, about to cross a thousand advisors. There's 40 something employees across XY Planning Network and kind of its family of companies. There's another almost a dozen over at Advice Pay, which is our technology firm we made to process all these financial planning fees. And so, you know, what started out as, hey, I think this is going to be a side hustle. Uh, you know, wouldn't it be neat to do this thing over here is now suddenly like, oh, we have 50 employees and we keep showing up on Inc.'s fastest growing businesses list. Like, this is taking more time than I'd expected. So, uh, so frankly, a lot of what I'm saying yes to right now has just been an expanding time commitment for some of the existing businesses that are, that are growing really well. Uh, to make sure that I can still support them and contribute to them in a way that's that's meaningful for me and and frankly has been positive for me because I can like I can feel the impact I can see the impact and and that's that's part of even what shifted for me is is uh, kind of the the filters that we use or that I use to figure out what to say yes and no to. Well, that was one of my questions for you is you do all this work, you put in the 65 to 70 hours a week. I mean, we see you everywhere, but what really motivates you to do this? I mean, you could, you could have done that anywhere in any field, but what motivates you? I think the driver that, that motivates me is just, it's, it's the, it's the impact effect of a, just what, what we do in, in financial planning as financial planners, you know, for, people who know a little bit of my backstory. Like I, I started out in the industry straight out of college. I had no background to financial services. I was a psych major theater minor pre-med student who decided I didn't want to do psychology, theater or medicine. So I landed in the industry pretty, uh, randomly based on, a uh, uh, a pitch from a sales manager in a life insurance company to, you know, come be a financial advisor in air quotes, you know, you're, uh, great income potential. We want good, smart people who work hard and all that stuff that sounded great. And it took me about a month to realize I was a life insurance salesperson. Uh, and and the challenge for me that hit me really hard in the in the first few months that I was a life insurance agent was when I realized like I am I am sitting across from people who have been at that point who have been saving money literally longer than I've been alive. <laughs> 
and I'm giving them advice about what to do with their life savings, like the stuff that they literally spent 20, 30, 40 years saving and accumulating. And I'm giving them advice on what to do with it. And knowing deep down, I don't know anything (laughs) about what I'm doing. Like I had no training and education experience in being a financial advisor. I took my series exams, but those don't actually teach you how to be a financial advisor. They teach you the laws that will apply to you so you don't get in trouble with your regulatory authorities while you're selling things. Uh, and, And what hit home for me is that like, there's so much that we can do to impact people with good financial planning advice and just helping them have this better relationship with money because it's so essential to what we do. You know, as, as Dick Wagner used to point out, like m- being able to handle your money now is is literally a survival level skill. Like if you can't handle your money, you won't be able to get access to food, clothing, and shelter. <laughs> Uh, if you're really bad with it, like it, it, it matters that much. Uh, and giving people advice on what to do with that when you're giving them advice on how to manage a resource that's literally essential for survival, uh, to me is an incredibly sacred duty. And so a lot of what kind of drove me and drove me deeper into financial planning is just an appreciation that I really do think that what we do as financial planners amounts to that sort of that level of a sacred duty to help people with something that if you screw it up, you can literally destroy their life. And the multiplier effect that it has when you can help, not just help people with that, help clients with that. But I think what ultimately drove me was I like helping the advisors who help the clients do that because for me, there's a multiplier effect. You know, if we can each do deep financial planning with 100 clients, then, you know, I can go out there and try to get my 100 clients. I can work with a firm that gets 1,000 clients, or I can try to help thousands of advisors who each reach hundreds of clients and have a 10x, 100x impact. And so, you know, even as we look at it from things like the XY Pline Network perspective, you are our BHAG, uh, Big Hairy Audacious Goal, for those who know the Jim Collins Good to Great reading, uh, like our, our, our BHAG is helping 10,000 advisors who reach a million consumers. And that to me is like, that's a legitimately achievable goal. Like we could actually impact a million people to have better financial planning advice and better relationships with money through, through that one business alone. And frankly, we already have even more of a readership reach than that with what we do with the Nerds IB blog. And so it's that multiplier effect for me that I think, well, I guess like it's the helping people with their money and kind of the sacred opportunity to really have the potential to change someone's life that drew me into the financial planning world in particular. And it's the, the impact reach and the multiplier effect that's now driven me towards building businesses and platforms that can help many advisors help clients as opposed to just solely focusing on helping clients directly as I, as I did for basically the first 10 years of my career. I'm listening to everything you're saying. So, so if I could, if I summarize it, uh, you work 65 to 70 hours doing work that you seem to love to do. Um, you have, you're building up this team, you're having this crazy impact on the world. It, 
kind of sounds like you have your act together on all of this. But I'm curious, what do you find most frustrating? Um, and I would say professionally, um, but like what, what, yeah, I'm curious, what do you find most frustrating? So I, I guess I'd answer that um, a couple of different ways. One, you know, I, I think it's probably the, like, it's the burn that any of us have when we're workaholics that like the work that we do, like, there's never enough time in the day to do all the things that we want to do. Uh, like, notwithstanding the number of businesses I've been involved with and helped to create, like, there's literally more than a dozen more in my head yeah. that I just don't have the time to get out and build. I try to find new partners I can work with as often as I can just to build and create new things. But even that gets hard because I can only manage so many relationships with so many partners before eventually I run out of time, even supporting lots of different businesses, even when I'm working with partners, even if they're going to largely run on the day to day, but I've, I've got the vision, I've got the strategy. I, I see the opportunity. Uh, so, so on the one end, like I, I really am kind of one of those people that just, I look at the world and I see the gaps uh, and, and not in a bad way, like look at all the bad things in the world that we're not doing, but just, I see the gaps as opportunities. Like look, look at all the things in the world that aren't getting done that could get done that would help help all this stuff be better. Um, and that's what's led me to do everything from the the blog to the speaking business to New Planet Recruiting and XY Plan Network and Advice Pay and uh, you know what we do at our advisory firm and then the TAMP platform we made from our advisory firm and our FP Pathfinder business for flowcharts and checklists, like just all these different things. Like I see all these gaps and opportunities about how the advisor community could be served better to help more people and have more reach and bring more people in who would be successful. Uh, and I just literally can't find the time and the people fast enough to get all the stuff out of my head and see all of that come to fruition. The second challenge to me, which is kind of an, uh, uh, a weird corollary to it uh, is, you know, so the, the first 10 years or so of my career, I, I kind of bounced around for the first few years. It was, as I said earlier, I was a life insurance agent and then I was a, uh, I worked in an independent broker dealer for a couple of years before ultimately landing in the RA channel. And the, the firm I joined in the RA channel, I joined them as their director of financial planning. And my role was really like building and developing this growing team of financial advisors the, the financial planning sort of deliverable that we would give clients, just actually going out and delivering plans to our clients. I did hundreds of them. Uh, but a lot of it was focused on managing, growing, developing this team of people. And one of the things that I kind of figured out in the process of growing, managing a team of people is that I don't actually love managing people. <laughs> and I'm really not terribly good at it. Um you know, setting a vision for where we're going and setting strategy. Like I'm really good at that stuff. I love that stuff, but just the day-to-day week-to-week management of people, I know it's important. I can kind of drag myself through it to do it and do a passable job to get things done. You know, we, we get things done in our business, but like that is not the thing I wake up excited to do every day. Uh, there are people out there who do uh, like more power to them. The folks that wake up every day and just they're just excited to develop a team and see it grow. Uh, you know, wonderful people, amazing people. I am not one of those people. Uh, it's just, it's not how my brain is wired. Do you consider yourself like a visionary? Yeah. I mean, I, I very much put myself on, on kind of the, the visionary end of that spectrum. Uh, you know, one of the, 
books that had probably the biggest impact on me over the past year or two is a book called Rocket Fuel. Yeah, love that book. By a guy named Gino Wickman. Uh, and so the basic thesis of Rocket Fuel, uh, well, so literally like Rocket Fuel uh, is explosive because it's actually the mixture of two chemical compounds that individually are relatively inert, but you mix them together and they're so explosively big that you can lift rockets up to space. Uh, and and so it's all about the mixture of, of two. And part of the point that Wickman makes early on in the book is that if you actually look at uh, a lot of the biggest, most successful businesses that are out there, you know, we tend to see like the visionary who leads the business and usually don't realize that virtually every uh, one of those businesses, it actually wasn't built by a single person visionary. It was built by a duo, by a pair, one of whom was the visionary and the other of whom was what Wickman calls the integrator, uh, who basically takes the visionary who has all these crazy things in their head that sees the world in a different way and wants to create things and actually makes them happen in real life with real people that you have to manage and execute with. So, you know, everybody knows Walt Disney is the great visionary that he was, but Walt was actually such a bad businessman that he almost bankrupted Disney, I think, three different times. Uh, it was his brother, Roy, who was actually the business executor who held it together and turned all these crazy visions in Walt's head into an actual executable thing. Uh, Steve Jobs had Wozniak, Bill Gates had Balmer. Uh, when you go through the list of all these great visionaries that built big businesses, virtually all of them had integrators uh, behind them. You don't necessarily see them as often because the visionaries tend to be the visible ones, but the visionaries don't work without the integrators. And the integrators don't work without the visionaries because they may be incredibly good at business management and execution and getting things done and building and developing teams, but they, because they're so good at focusing on the guts of running and executing the business, they're often not great visionaries to see what the business should be doing next. And so it's these pairs that work so well. And, and part of why Rocket Fuel had such a big impact on me is what I realized reading this of like, I am so not an integrator. Like I am, I am a visionary. I am so far out on the visionary end of that spectrum that, that that's my challenge. And I realized that actually a lot of the business partners that I've taken on over the years are very often integrator types. They're, they're good at taking a bunch of this vision stuff that I can lay down and help translate it into business execution reality uh, and, and build and develop the people and the teams that are, that are, uh, that are necessary to do that. And so it's it's now even from my end led me more in the direction of I'm always looking for more people who are integrators and have that integrator personality type because frankly, I think I've got enough vision stuff in my head to power about a dozen more integrators. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm just trying to find them, like the people who have that particular skill set of translating vision and execution and building and developing teams and managing people and all the stuff that goes with it uh, to help turn visions into reality. Cause I'm really good at the visions, but uh, you know, I'm actually so wired towards the visions. I'd act, I'd actually, once I come up with a really good vision of a business opportunity, I would so rather think of the next one than actually be building the first one. And so I'm curious, how many businesses do you own or a partner of? Oh God, it depends on how you count them, but like something around eight. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, some are kind of blended together. It's like our 
we have our advisory firm, Pinnacle Advisory Group, but we also launched a uh, a TAMP platform for other advisors, particularly folks that are in the ten to hundred million dollar realm who don't always get a lot of love and attention from bigger TAMPs, but uh, you know we're built to support advisors on that end. So it's it's technically not a separate legal entity, but it's an entirely separate business line with Pinnacle. So we have Pinnacle Advisory Group, which serves clients. We have Pinnacle Advisor Solutions, which. Uh, serves other other RIAs. So I, I kind of count that as two, although it's legally just one business entity. So there's two over there. And then we've got XY Plan Network and Advice Pay and FP Pathfinder and New Planner Recruiting. Uh, and then uh, a bunch of different business lines that we run on the blog itself. So I've got a speaking business. I've got a uh, kind of a newsletter member section business. Uh, and And so by the time you mix all these different pieces together, uh, and you end out with about eight or so, depending on how you, <laughs> how you count them and carve them up. And so how would you say is like your sweet spot? Are you really that consultant, that visionary in each one of these roles? Yes, for the most part with with the caveat that you know human beings are wonderfully different and varied. And so every business has its own personality. Every Every partner has their own their own needs about what I need to do to support them as a partner. So I've got a, I've got a vision and strategy role in all of these businesses. Like that's certainly, I think just happens to be one of my core strengths. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm also a big fan of the tool called strengths finder, uh, which is literally all about focus your strengths and spend time in your strengths. So they assess, I think 33 different strengths in four different categories, um, strategy, execution, influencing, and I'm blanking on what the fourth category is, something around uh, uh, relationships and team building. And uh, like eight of my uh, eight of my top nine strengths are all eight of the strategic strengths. Uh, and the only other one that's in there from the executing side is the achiever strength, which is I like to figure out how to have measurable impact, which is why I you know, end out with all these businesses that try to do uh, high impact and multiplier effects. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very much wired in that strategic visionary role for, for all of the businesses. But, you know, for some businesses, that means applying the strategy to figure out what can we do and what can we feasibly do without overwhelming the business. So, you know, at, at XY Planning Network, my co-founder, uh, and now our, our CEO is Alan Moore. Uh, Alan is actually also a very strong uh, vision and idea guy, but he's particularly good at what they call the activator strength, which is just he gets things from zero to one. He gets them off the ground, right? As, as I know you've seen, and even in our business, like there are a lot of people that might be successful advisors in the long run, but they really struggle just to launch and get something going, particularly if they're creating own, their own firm from scratch. Alan has this amazing gift that he can get things off the ground. He gets them started. He's got this great driving, uh, natural driving ability to get things done. Uh, the problem, though, is he's also a, a great strategic visionary like I am, which means he actually wants to fire up so many things at once that sometimes it gets a little overwhelming for everyone else around him. And so the uh, kind of the running joke for a long time is our, our unofficial titles in the business are he's the director of speeding things up and I'm the director of slowing things down. And so I'm always trying to pull us back just a tiny bit to like, okay, but what's the vision of the thing that we actually can do with the resources that we have so that we don't overwhelm our team? And, you know, and then he tries to pull us forward and always keep us marching forward. And it's been a, a very good balance between the two of us. 
Uh, whereas for some of the other businesses that I'm involved with, I've got partners who are a little bit less in the speedy start realm. They need a little bit more of a nudge. And so they may be very good at executing, but my job with them sometimes is to speed them up and say, look, here's a direction that you can be building towards. And here's the thing that you got to make sure you're working on this month so that we're uh, getting to where we need to be for the quarter so that we're getting where we need to be over the year so that we're ready to do the things strategically that we need to do next year to build the business over the next three to five years. And so, uh, you know, as, as people vary, so do actually does my relationship to the partners and to the businesses. It always has a strategic lens. Again, that's just kind of the area I love to be in and that I uh, uh, fits with my strength. But what the people I'm working with need in order to make that work as a partnership uh, varies by the partner in the partnership. And that's kind of something I had to learn and figure out for myself in just my own sort of personal maturity and growing phase uh, in in working with more businesses and more partners of just trying to get better at understanding what does my partner actually need? Like some need to be slowed down, some need to be sped up, some just need to be lifted up every now and then because entrepreneurialism, even when it goes well, knocks you on your backside some days when bad things happen and setbacks occur. Uh, so you know, di- different different partners need different things, and the businesses need slightly different things from me. But it 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 all wraps around that strategic lens. There's you know the book out there called Essentialism, and mm-hmm. I've heard many business businesses talk about you know the importance of focus. And so you know, you hear about your eight plus and probably growing number of businesses. What's your response to that book and the, this idea of a singular focus? So first of all, I, I love the book. Um, you know, one of my favorite quotes from from Greg McCune is that uh, the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything because that's what lets them keep their focus. And uh, you know, he also has a wonderful analogy in there of what he calls the paradox of success, which is that you know people that build like a business or do a thing and are successful with it. You know, early on, they get some great growth, they get some great momentum, it all feels positive and great. And then other people start to notice what you're doing. And then they want to be a part of it. Maybe they want to join it. Maybe they want to be your partners. Maybe they want to nudge you in a new direction because they see a new opportunity and want you to be involved. Maybe they've got a new business opportunity that relates in. And, And the challenge for so many people is after they have their first round of success, all these other opportunities start coming in and you start saying yes to them because they sound really neat and they're good opportunities and they may be, but eventually you end up so spread out doing all these different opportunities that you lose the focus on the thing that made you great in the first place. And that's when the business stalls and the business flatlines. And so he calls it, uh, I think very aptly, the paradox of success, which is that uh, the the being successful at doing something often brings the opportunities that if you don't figure out how to say no to the right things, uh, create the opportunities that cause the success to end. Yeah. And that, that like the, the success can actually kill itself if you can't figure out how to keep the focus to it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very sensitive to that and, and not ignorant of the irony as someone that has like <laughs> eight, eight different businesses. Um, what it's meant for me and what I've been sort of slowly and steadily figuring out over time is to me, it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to quite be boiling it all down to one business. Although I think for many people it does and probably should. 
I happen to have a particular kind of role that fits okay to multiple businesses because the particular thing, the particular singular one thing, essentialism focus that I happen to be particularly good at is literally visioning businesses, which tends to be a thing that supports multiple ones. When did you realize that was a strength of yours? Probably sometime around the fourth or the fifth one got created. Uh, Sort sort of no joke. Like I, I didn't really, I didn't view that as a strength of mind. I just kind of saw these opportunities to do things and then went and did them and they worked out well. Like we've, we've really only had one business of all the stuff we ever did that, that didn't grow successfully. And that was primarily just because I unwittingly ended out with a partner who wasn't actually that interested and oriented towards growth. Uh, so, you know, lesson learned to me about how to, how to better understand partners and their motivations to make sure we're aligned and on the same page. Uh, but it, 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 it didn't struggle for its lack of vision, just that I didn't have the right partner on that one. I, I think it was around that time of like 2015 when I realized I'd I'd started and got into so many different businesses at once that I was starting to drown in it a little, struggling with time management, struggling to figure out what to say yes and no to, unable to figure out what my capacity was. That's where I went down the hole. I got to find me a system and the big rocks thing came into play for me. Um, so I think it it started around that point when I realized like, okay, I'm doing a lot of these things and they're really cool individually and I enjoy all of them. But in the aggregate, I'm basically starting to drown myself. So I got to figure out, first of all, just my capacity, what to say yes and no to. And so that was driven very much by kind of putting this big rock system in place for myself. And then the second question becomes, well, what like, what do you want to say yes to? So I, I look at this in terms of um, filters. So, you know, early on in your business, you pretty much take any opportunity you can possibly get. That's what we all do early on. Like you just want revenue. Yeah, I want to frame this out a little bit. Sure. So, how many how many users are you in the business right now? Um, nineteen. So you're nineteen years in the business, and four years ago you realized kind of what was your core strength. Yes. I mean that's crazy when you listen to it. I mean I know I've been in the business about ten years now, and I know the pressure that I felt to know my place. Yeah. For years I felt that. I will say it's been a little bit iterative for me. Uh, you know, I I think. Um, so the first cycle of this for me probably took me, well, basically uh, about eight years. So I I started in 2000, right at the market peak. Fantastic timing to start an advisory career. Uh, I, so I started in 2000 and you know I started down the traditional advisor realm and kind of bounced around a few times, different firms, different roles, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and so it was by about 2008 that I was starting to realize that the thing I was doing, which was this director of planning role and developing and training advisors and doing plans for clients and delivering them, um, was was not my was not my highest and best use. Uh, that there were some other skill sets that I had that I just that I was better at, and it was mostly around this writing and speaking and teaching thing. You know, I just. I could look at information, pull it together, synthesize it, and share it with others in a way that seemed to be really helpful for them with a wider reach than potential than just what I was doing in the firm. And so that was what led me to say, okay, well, I'm going to pull back from the advisory firm, dial my time way down, go and launch this writing and speaking thing, which uh, you know started out as the Kitsis Report newsletter and a speaking 
business. It turned into the Nerd's Eye View blog a few years later. So the the first wave of it, I think, came then. And, and it was just this realization that I have this particular skill set around pulling and synthesizing information together and being able to package it in a way that's helpful for other people. And, and I suppose in retrospect, it was a kind of I see the world, like I vision the world a little bit different than everybody else because I'm particularly good at connecting these dots and and uh, and bringing it all together for folks. But I don't even think I quite realized what I was doing with it yet beyond about eight years in, I realized I like gathering this information, synthesizing and sharing it much more than seeing across from the next client. So I'm going to go do more of that. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the first realization was there and and in the context of your comment, like that only took eight years. <laughs> and, and then I did that for a while. And then it was probably seven more years of doing that before I realized that actually isn't quite the right way to frame my strength. It happens to be part of it, but really it's the way I can take in a lot of information and th- synthesize it to, to see the world a little bit differently. That's just not a writing thing or a speaking thing. You can actually get partners and solve those problems rather than just write about them. And, and so that's what I think started the shift towards creating businesses, which kind of happened a little bit in the early 2010s, but really got underway in 2014, 2015. Uh, and I started drowning in it a little. <laughs> and so as I began to move towards this big rock structure, so I could even just figure out what I had capacity for, then the question became, okay, well, what do you want those rocks to be? And what do you want them to look like? And what I increasingly realized was those those rocks need to be tied to strategic vision stuff. Like the more time I spend doing that stuff, the more I tend to grow businesses, be able to have more impact, do more things to help more people uh, with, you know, the added side bonus of, you know, it tends to also actually grow businesses and income and, you know, positive things from a financial perspective as well. I'm curious. I, I hear everything you're saying and it, and it all makes sense um, of what I know of you. Um, but do you see... But. <laughs> I feel the that. coming. There's, there's no but. <laughs> do you see a day where you're not writing blogs? You know, frankly, it's it shifted some already. Yeah. Uh, you know, three years ago, kind of coming out of the 2015 pain into 2016, I was really still like I was writing basically everything. Every now and then, I would have a guest post from someone else, but you know, probably 90 to 95 percent of the content was me. Um, now, in practice, like I still do our podcasts on on Tuesdays, or you know, financial advice six podcasts on Tuesdays, or Kitsis and Carl podcasts on every other Thursday. I still do the weekend reading writing because it's actually just good accountability for me to make sure I'm always reading and keeping up on industry news and trends, which I need to do from the strategy end anyways. Uh, you know, I can't skip out on my weekly reading as a professional for my own development because I promised a zillion people I was going to make a summary of the 12 best articles and send them out by 3 p.m. on Friday. So really good personal accountability mechanism to stay on target. Um, but you know, the rest of the content, which is basically what we write on Mondays and Wednesdays, Monday is normally a practice management industry trends article. Uh, Wednesdays are a, you know, some kind of technical planning strategies article you can get continuing education credit for. Uh, you know, three years ago, I was still writing basically 100% of the Monday and Wednesday articles. Um, by last year, I was only really writing about three quarters of them. This year, I'm only actually writing about half of them. 
next year, I'll probably be writing less than half of them. Um, I don't really see that ever going to zero. Like there's still a bunch of things in my head. Not all of them I'm going to make a business on. Some of them I just want to write about. <laughs> so uh, I always need some writing output to get the demons out of my head. Uh, uh, right, sort of the creative artistic thing yeah. uh, in my own weird nerdy way. So I, I think there'll always be some piece of the writing, but I am very much in, in kind of a portion of that transition myself from, you know, we, I mean, we, you go through this in the advisory business as well. Like a lot of people are very, very good advisors. They can build very successful practices around themselves. But if you really want to build an advisory business, you have to transfer yourself from being an advisor to being an advisory firm business owner that employs advisors who do that advisor stuff because you have to run your business, uh, particularly if you want to grow it much larger. And I'm now in a transition, I think, of a similar kind of phase. You know, Even a lot of advisors that have built very large, very successful firms still keep a handful of clients for themselves. And so similarly, like I'll probably still keep a handful of articles that I continue to write for myself. Uh, but I'm in a version of that process transition right now to say, okay, so from the business perspective, so if as an advisor, like how do I take this great advisor skill set that I have and teach it to other people so that they can do the same great advisor work that I did because I taught them and then I don't have to actually do it because I taught them to do it. And I'm now in a similar kind of transition with respect to our blogging and writing platform. So, you know, what it means to publish a Kitsis article won't change, but I won't be the one that writes all of them. And I see our platform over time evolving from what certainly started out as essentially a personal brand platform. Like it was my name on it and I wrote the articles and like I was, I was, I was the person, I was the blogger, uh, into what eventually becomes a brand where the, the Kitsis brand stands for a certain kind of content quality and depth and relevance and impact for the advisor community. But I want to teach people to create that kind of content. So I'm not the sole only one that's creating it uh, because that's what I have to do if I want to take the business to the next level. What does the future hold for you? Well, I don't, I don't really know how to stop because <laughs> I'm, <laughs> you know, I can say, you know, nine, nine top strengths, eight are strategic. And the ninth is achiever, which is basically a skill set of like always have to be marching forward and have some measurable way to see that you're making progress and impact in the world. Uh, so like, I don't know how to stand still. Um, I almost kind of literally, uh, it's the ADHD in me. Like I, I literally don't stand still. It's why I walk on the stage and have a standing desk. Like I, I cannot stay still. Um, but it, it's very much true for me on the business end as well. And so I mean, I, I don't know how to stop. I wouldn't know how to stop. Yeah. Like I kind of compulsively can't stop. So it has to continue forward and growing. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, like I've got a never ending list of new businesses, new ideas, new opportunities in my head. Uh, we just hired a director of platform for the Kitsis, uh, uh website. Uh, like I've got a half a dozen things that he's going to be working on and building for years to come. Uh, I've got a dozen plus business ideas in my head. I'm just trying to find the right partners and integrators who, you know, reach out and say, Hey, I want to work with you on this thing, or I want to work with you. Give me a thing. I'll, I'll go build it. Uh, and so I, I think that direction just continues, uh, for me. And, you know, it, it's a funky thing that, you know, I know a lot of the 
the traditional business wisdom and advice is that if you want to get somewhere, you have to have a goal of where you're going, right? And there's all this research, like people who write down their goals are 17% more successful than those who don't or whatever the, whatever the number or percentage is. Um, and, and frankly, I have found that I do much, much better when I don't write down those goals. And the reason is that I think we, we, we tend to underestimate the impact of compounding and compound growth. Uh, our, our clients do it all the time, right? They you know, don't understand. They might totally be on track for their retirement goals. They just don't realize how much growth compounds when you keep it invested and stay the course for multi-decade periods of time. Uh, uh, there's a similar effect, I think, that happens in businesses where we sometimes get a little bit too anxious. It's not growing fast enough this year and underestimate how much bigger it gets in five or seven or 10 years if you just let the compounding continue. And the problem actually that I have is, you know, businesses when run well tend to grow with compounding. And most of us set goals that are very linear. Like I want to get from here to there and here's how much I need to do each year to get from here to there. And what I realized pretty early on is that, I mean, even reflecting back on the businesses we've had, um, if I had set goals for myself, I am completely certain I never would have grown businesses and had the impact I've been able to have already because I never would have dreamed <laughs> three or five years ago, much less 10 plus years ago, that it would have grown to the size that it has. Like I just, I couldn't have dreamed it was going to grow that, that big. I knew we were doing a thing that was helping people. I was very confident in that, but how many people showed up and the ways that it compounded and all the things that grew from it. It's like, I never could have visioned that, uh, you know, three years ago, I still ran a personal team that was just me and a, and a, a part-time assistant that I was making full time. Cause I had external partners, but I kept my core business to myself. Uh, you know, by next year, we'll probably have eight to 10 employees on the Kitsis platform doing a whole range of stuff behind the scenes to power the platform forward. Uh, you know, XY Planning Network and Advice Pay are already 50 employees in five years. Like I just, I never would have dreamt of this stuff. And frankly, if I'd set goals, the goals would have been linear, smaller, and I probably would have taken my foot off the gas when I got to them. So I've been like, cool, had a goal, got it. Good. Like I'm good now. Can cruise for a little while. And not saying the goal and just allowing the compounding to happen, frankly, has taken all of this stuff just so much further than I ever thought or dreamed that, uh, that it could have. And so even from a business management end, you know, there's a little bit of one year and two year planning I do and have to do now. Cause, uh, you, you just got to figure out particularly once you have employees, you got to figure out things like, you know, will you be able to give your team raises? Do they have growth opportunities? Will the company get bigger so they can move up the org chart and get promoted someday? Cause good people kind of want that to stick around. So there's, there's some level of planning at least a couple of years out that we have to do just from a very, uh, you know, tactical get stuff done in the business. Like, hey, are you going to outgrow your lease in two years? You probably have to do a business projection and know that you're going to need a new space lease by the third year. But short of that, which is still relatively intermediate term, like a year or two of business planning, three at the most. Um, most of what I do right now is actually just focus on: Do we have the right habits? Do we have the right systems? Like. As long as we're continuing to produce content that goes out to an ever-growing number of advisors who read it, 
engage it, consume it, and share it with other people. And God bless Google Analytics, like you can measure and track <laughs> all of that now. <laughs> so as as long as that needle continues to move forward, uh, I'm willing to just let the compounding happen and see where it goes. Uh, and and likewise, even as we looked at what happens for businesses like XY Plan Network and Advice Pay and some of the others. Uh, you know, we're not necessarily trying to set super concrete goals of like, we must get by here to be a success because there would be a failure. Uh, and, and, you know, this number is too unimaginably large. We do a little bit of that over one to three years, just so we can make very practical business hiring decisions. But, uh, you know, th that's another platform that me already is so wildly larger now. Than what we ever thought you know five years ago we thought wouldn't it be cool if we were at like 100 to 125 after five years and we're at a thousand like we 10x'd the goal <laughs> uh and just couldn't have dreamed of it then but we weren't really building for a thousand per se we were building a thing that was useful to people we were listening really closely to make sure that what we were building was useful and that the core metrics were growing, which for that business is pretty straightforward. Are members signing up and then are they retaining? Uh, and if you just focus on doing those things well, you know, at some point the compounding tells you where the business is going to go. And so, uh, you know, even as I look forward from here, like I know we're going to keep helping advisors. I know there's more ways that we can do that. I got to make sure that we do it in ways where we can pay the people who are helping us because it's right. important to me to give our team some reasonable job security. And short of that, like, I don't know how big it's going to get. I never thought it was going to get this big. So, you know, maybe it'll slow down in a few years. Maybe it won't. Uh, I know when we focus on helping people, people show up and are willing to engage us. And that seems to work out in the long run. And so that's mostly where I'm focused now. And, and at a personal level, it's just figuring out what can I do with my time that has the biggest impact and multiplier effects to help make that happen. And am I doing something that eventually sort of pigeonholes or shoehorns myself into a role that limits what I could do because I'm stuck doing things that bottleneck the business instead of expand the opportunities of the business. And so that's a lot of my hiring personal team and taking us over a couple of years from like one to eight, up to eight to 10 employees uh, is all really built around trying to repurpose my time. Because in essence, as I look at it, like the first decade of my career in my twenties was actually really mostly about just getting my core skills foundation, like learning all my technical stuff, getting my alphabet soup of <laughs> degrees and designations after my name, like learning the, learning my profession of being a financial planner and sitting across from clients and delivering plans. Uh, the second decade for me, as I'm now you know, coming up on my 20 year anniversary in the business, the second decade for me was mostly about you know, building things and just being very hands-on, like building things, working with partners to build things, getting things done and off the ground. Uh, and as I look forward to the next 10 years for me, it's very much shifting again. And it's much more about, uh, impact and reach and figuring out like, okay, now we actually got some team and resources, like how big could we make this and how many people could we impact? And am I spending enough time focused on those issues to actually help the businesses get there? And what do I need to redo with my time and my team around me in order to make that happen? 
this is an FPA podcast and you've been a longtime member of FPA, but you've also published some articles recently that have been somewhat say critical of FPA. Yep. <laughs> so my question for you is why is FPA important to you? Is it the mission? Is it the people? Like, why is this important? Well, so there's a few layers. One, I'm a big person around community and that everybody needs a community of people like them that they can you know, build relationships with and connect with. Um, to me, uh, you know, the, the young advisor community, frankly, was underserved for a long time. That's one way, why we met, went and made NextGen. We want to make a community for uh, the planners who weren't getting served in the, in the ecosystem back then 15 years ago. Uh, uh, you know, we created XY Planning Network as a community for certain types of advisors. You know, the whole Kits' platform is a community for certain types of advisors who are serious about their craft and really hold financial planning in high regard as a sacred duty. Uh, you know, if you just want to be a salesperson, you're not going to enjoy the content on our platform. It's nerdy and takes too much time. So, you know, I've always been focused on communities and organizations and systems that can support and serve communities. And to me, like FPA is the community for financial planners, uh, for people who've chosen to take on CFP certification as a way to make their mark that they're serious about their craft and trade of being a real financial planner. And those folks need a community and, and people on the independent channel side in particular need a community, not to make this a independent versus employee captive channels, but just again, like if you work at a large captive firm as an employee, the mothership provides you a lot of community. Your coworkers are your community. Uh, when you're an independent advisor, and you sit in the four walls of your office with no other advisors in your space because you're an independent and you need community. Like you have to have organizations like the Financial Planning Association to provide that community. It's 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 a support system. It's also an educational system. It's also a business success system. Like there's a lot that attaches to what happens when you find your community and then uh, find ways to get success within your community and just. CFP certificates who are financial planners need a community. There's 85,000 of them. Uh, you have to have a community for them. They desperately need a community. And I think FPA, well, it is that community or is at least best positioned for that community, even if it underserves the community right now. But, you know, we all need a community to be part of. Uh, and FPA should be the one for financial planners should be the anchor one. There can be other ones that serve subsets of the community. XYPN has a version. NAPFA has a version. There will, there will be others that attach on, but there's always one that's the center. And to me, that's FPA and we desperately need it. And so I, I just desperately want to see it succeed. So I have two hopefully fast questions for you. All right. So if I'm a new financial planner and I have one credit for Audible, what book should I get? So... Oh, do you really going to make me pick one? Because um, <laughs> I want to give like two or three. I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat and give two. You can you can yell at me later. Um, so I'll, I'll I'll give you two. One is advice that sticks mm, yeah. by Moira Summers because I think it's a it's a really powerful book because it talks about you know the difference between just telling clients what to do and actually trying to give them the advice that will stick, i.e., that they will actually take. Uh, and when you get out of the realm of just trying to sell a product, like I know how to measure the success, they bought my insurance policy or my managed account or whatever it was. When you get down to driving advice success, like it only works if they take the advice and follow through on it. 
And Moira talks about how to think about what clients need to get advice they can actually act on and implement in a way that to me is completely different than anything that's ever been out there in our advisor space about what it really means to give advice and be a good financial planner. Uh, the, the second book I'll give, cause it just can't be held to one, uh, is, uh, the history of financial planning by, um, uh, Demby Brandon and Ollie Welch. Yeah. And, you know, the history of financial planning to me, like it's, it's kind of our Bible as professionals about where we came from. Uh, you know, all, all groups, all communities have an origin story about where they came from and how they were birthed forward and the, the dynamics that brought this thing forward from where it, you know, from where it was in the past to where it was, to where it is today. Uh, and, and history of financial planning as the name would aptly imply, like literally is the book of where we all came from and, and how we got to this point that, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, 13 people got together in a hotel room 50 years ago in Chicago to start thinking about what it would be like to create this certified financial planner thing into 50 years later, we have 85,000 CFP certificates and we're talking about fiduciary rules that would require everybody to adhere to that standard. Uh, and so I think it's an incredibly powerful book, even down to just the history of all the different organizations we've got and you know, the merger of the FPA and its predecessor organizations and why there were all these internal rifts and where the CFP board actually came from. Uh, you know, it's really powerful to understand the roots of your own profession. Uh, and so I recommend any anybody and everyone who's serious about becoming a financial planner, like you have to understand where your profession came from. Uh, it also just helps to clarify like why certain organizations fight with certain other organizations and uh, some of the regulatory challenges that we still have today. Uh, so that that would be my my second book is, you know, get history of financial planning and actually understand where, where we came from, because it's very helpful as you then try to think about where we're going from here. So my last pressing question for you is just how much of your stuff actually has to go through compliance? Uh, how much of my stuff actually has to go through compliance? Uh, the answer is actually very little. That was a pretty a pretty deliberate and careful decision for from me early on. Plus, uh, you know, some constructive work with the partners of my firm that said, "Look, like I want to do this writing and speaking thing outside of our advisory firm. Essentially, we're going to disclose it as another business activity, an OBA, uh, but it's not specific to our advisory firm." And that's part of why, like. You don't see my firm's name on there. You don't see solicitations. We don't talk about our investment performance or frankly, anything we do ever at our advisory firm because it's not built and meant to be a solicitation for the advisory firm. It's an outside business activity that provides speaking, content, continuing education for financial advisors. Uh, there are some people, obviously, who are going to see our site, read it. They're consumers. They're going to want to know more about us and they'll eventually end up on our advisory firm. But then when they end up on our advisory firm, that's you know, all of the normal regulated oversight compliance activity uh, that ties to it. So it, it frankly ties my hands in many ways about things I can and cannot write about. Fortunately, it's not really the things I wanted to write about, which is what we're doing in our firm. I want to talk about what we can do in the profession and how we can get better as financial planners so that aligned well. If I was doing it because I was trying to develop business and grow my client base, it wouldn't work that way and everything would have to run through compliance. Uh, but Which would slow things uh, down. Be, 
which would slow things down a little <laughs> bit, uh, or just require more infrastructure on the compliance end so they could deal with my volume of stuff. Uh, but because it was built to be something that is literally beyond our advisory firm, uh, we run it as an outside business activity, and that actually limits a lot of the scope of uh, uh, obligatory compliance oversight that's tied to it. But I'm also super careful with what I do to not do things that are solicitations for the firm, not write about anything that we do at the firm, like not do anything that would invite regulators to say like, hey, it looks like this is an advertisement for Pinnacle. Why aren't you doing compliance oversight like advertising? Like it's not. And we keep it really separate for that reason. Oh, makes sense. Well, thanks for thanks for joining us today, Michael. Absolutely. My, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Love what you hear on this podcast? Join us in the FPA Activate Facebook community, where you'll find a community of other passionate planners like you. Not only that, but there are live How We Do What We Do sessions focused on what real financial planning looks like in practice. Be sure to join us there to lend your voice, become a better planner, and help grow the financial planning profession.